Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the music of the British landscape with Richard King and his new book, The Lark Ascending. For almost two decades, Richard King has lived in the hill farming country of Radnorshire, mid Wales. He has written for The Guardian, Vice, Observer, and many other publications and was co editor of Loops. He's the author of Original Rockers, which was shortlisted for the Gordon Byrne Prize, and How Soon Is Now, named Sunday Times Music Book of the Year, both published by Faber, as is his latest book, The Lark Ascending, The Music of the British Landscape, which we're going to be talking about today. Richard, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Great to be here. Where did the idea for this one come from? Um, well, I have, as, as you said then, I have lived in a fairly remote and rural location for almost 20 years. And on one hand, I noticed that nature, with a capital N, was sort of intruding into our lives more and more. And a lot of nature writing was being published, some of which I really, really enjoy. But as with anything that ends up being rather overdone, I found the subject matter wasn't so much nature as the reasons why the person had decided they needed a nature cure and it was almost as though through this sort of prism of nature healing nature was becoming an app or something and I wanted to write about our relationship with the landscape collectively first and foremost and you know I I have very many personal connections with nature (laughs) including chopping wood in the winter and wishing our house was warmer but um I wanted to kind of move away from the personal and move more into the communal and the collective because to have that response to our own landscape in this country is still a manifestly difficult thing to have. So the book starts with an exploration of the, the titular piece of music, The Lark Ascending, yeah. um, by Ray Vaughan Williams, which you describe as, as it's often described, as the sort of quintessential piece of music about the British landscape. Um, but its inspiration, its beginnings, came out of a much more uh, a tumult, shall we say. It comes out of the First World War, I guess. Yes, he began composing it at the outbreak of the First World War and it was premiered in 1921. We don't have a This Land is Your Land in this country, which American schoolchildren sing every morning. 
Um, but I think the Lark Ascending sort of, in some ways, fulfills that role in that it gives us a relationship with our landscape. In the book, I call it the countryside of the mind, the, the, the landscape it evokes. And the countryside of the mind is more easy to go to in many ways than the actual countryside. And I think if there is a nostalgia in the piece of music, which many listeners claim there is, I think maybe Vaughan Williams himself was nostalgic, having volunteered for the Western Front in his 40s, in a twice the age of the usual conscript. And certainly he was very patriotic in many ways. But I think he, you know, he lost George Butterworth, I think his friend died in the trenches. He lost many people. He worked in the ambulance, he, he served in the ambulances, um, attended to the dying. And although he possibly escaped PTSD, he had survivor's remorse and he lost the hearing in one ear so i think his his nostalgia for was for a landscape if it ever existed that existed before the horrors of 1418 and he himself was nostalgic for that world for for reasons that i don't think he ever articulated but i think and he didn't want to talk like so many survivors didn't want to talk about his experiences but i think the yearning and the nostalgia people locate in the Lark Ascending isn't necessarily a small p patriotic Elgar-esque definition of national character. It's something far more subtle than that. And that that idea of the landscape of you know, big houses, landowners, ruddy-faced peasants, were tenant farmers working on on those farms and gamekeepers. That's all changing now. The First World War's happened. Yeah. Either those staff have gone off and got themselves killed. Yeah. Or they've realised, having gone through that experience, you know, that's all bullshit. We don't, we don't need that life anymore. No, so, so around the second half of the 1890s, the agriculture fell into a depression and it never really recovered. During the outbreak of the First World War, lots of oak trees were cut down for munitions and munition boxes um, and for the manufacture of rifles. And at the conclusion of the First World War... Really, I mean, the 20s and 30s was when the countryside, when suburbia was created. At the turn of the last century, Middlesex was almost, you know, a, a rural county. And similarly, you know, the bungalows that appeared on the south coast and the ribbon development that, that you know, even, even Metroland, which I think we still rather complicatedly, especially in our kind of mid-century modern era, rather romanticised now, you know, that was built on really fertile horticultural farmland. But, um, yes, generally after the war, agriculture fall, falls into a terrible depression from which it doesn't recover and from which house building sort of takes over. And similarly, um, yeah, the workforce has no interest in returning to the Edwardian way of life. And the drift from the land to the towns begins in earnest. And so a lot of these country houses become unmanageable for the for the people that own them. So we start to see the rise of organisations like the National Trust. Yeah. Um, there's the Council for the Preservation of Rural England you talk about. But I want to talk about an organisation I'd never heard of, the Ferguson Gang. Ferguson Gang, yeah. So I've never, I've never watched Downton Abbey. But the decline of the country house was very, very acute. I mean, they'd lost a generation of heirs, for starters, as well as a workforce to run them. And 
Ferguson's gang, there were a lot of kind of self-starting organisations after the First World War. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the Just Williams stories, uh, but, you know, Mrs Brown, Williams' mother's always having tea parties for the Society of the Spiritual Betterment and, you know, characters like this. And in the book, we may go on to talk about this, I talk about the Kibbo Kift. We will. Okay, so we'll get there. Um, But, uh, yes, a response to the horrors of 1418 was collective action in all its forms across the political spectrum. And Ferguson's gang was a collection of well-to-do young women who wanted to kind of do a sort of agitprop version of the National Trust and save rural buildings they thought worthy of preservation. And they did so by posting ransom notes using strange pseudonyms such as, it's not quite Bill Stickers, but uh, Bloody Britches was one, um, I think. And they would deliver money to the National Trust donations in goose carcasses and uh, generally wanted to kind of use a sort of Dick Turpin-esque series of methods to rescue old mills and things like that. And the other thing that's happening around this time is, again, the the landowners and and the people coming into conflict is the Kinder Scout mass trespass. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I think the Kinder Scout, I think we all all have a duty to acknowledge that our relationship with with our own natural environment in this country is a consequence of Kinder Scout. And, you know, in a very new Labour-esque way, John Prescott stood up in 98 and said it's one of the best examples of civil disobedience leading to the betterment of society in possibly more uh, elaborate language than that. 1932, uh, a few hundred mill workers, unemployed people, uh, mainly boys, young men, but not exclusively from Manchester and Salford and the surrounding areas, did what we all now assume to be a very common or garden habitual activity. They went for a walk up in the Peak District. Uh, they went in the Kinder Scout range, and Kinder Scout was always popular for hunting and shooting, and they're consequently always full of gamekeepers for the estate owners. And the leader of the trespass, Benny Rothman, who I think it's worth pointing out was both a member of the Young Communist League and Jewish, came into contact with a gamekeeper, one of whom sprained an ankle or something very minor. Consequently, Rothman is is put before a judge. And trespass isn't a criminal offence at this point, but he receives a criminal a, a custodial sentence. And there was an outcry as to why he was singled out for such harsh treatment. I think retrospectively it's agreed his background was a contributing factor. And similarly, although there was lots of rambling associations being formed at this time, as well as the Youth Hostel Association, the actual Ramblers Association, association as we know it today, hadn't quite formed. And there were members of that that thought Kinder Scout put their cause back. They didn't like the direct action. And Ewan McCall wrote the Manchester Rambler uh, in, in celebration of it. But I think now, whatever the feelings at the time, I think it's established that without such a a moment of mass disobedience saying, you know, who does this land belong to? What are we allowed to do here? Why can't we go for a walk on a Sunday? And this is a time of mass unemployment where people needed to be in the fresh air for their sanity and their health. And certainly uh, the outbreak of the Second World War interrupted this push towards freeing up the land. The Labour Party went into the Second World War 
with a policy of land nationalisation up until 1942. But they, they rode back on that. But by, you know, 15 years after Kinderscout, you have the National Parks Act. And we do suddenly have, as a nation, access to fresh air. Um, I want to talk about how the British landscape was used, I guess, as propaganda during yeah. the Second World War. You talk about one painting for a poster in particular. Yes, it's by um, Frank Newbold, um, who was assistant designer at the War Office PR department. And he was working under Abram Games. Now, Abram Games, who has an exhibition at the moment and is one of the many emigres who, who came to Britain in the 20s and 30s who had a huge impact on, on design, both in architecture and in um, graphic design, if you think certainly of London Transport and, and um, the imagery they used. That was a lot highly influenced by, by lots of immigrants to this country. Um, Abram Grahams did a poster, Your Country Worth Fighting For, and it showed a frontispiece of a modern hospital behind which was a young boy with rickets. And Winston Churchill, God bless him, had a huge, huge outcry at this poster and wanted it banned and said it in no way represented Britain. Um, you don't tend to read about that in his biographies. Similarly, you don't tend to read about him sending in the troops in Tonopandi either. Um, I doubt Boris Johnson writes about either in his biography. That that poster of of the child with rickets was immediately blacklisted by the powers that be. And the one that replaced it was the South Downs, Your Britain, Fight for It Now, which shows a shepherd with his flock of sheep wandering through the South Downs. It's a deeply bucolic scene, perfect rolling green fields, sheepdogs by his feet, um, very healthy-looking shepherd with a nice rucksack. And this was then considered... Not equally extreme, but it was considered rather too extreme for the time. You know, the, the majority of the people volunteering for the war and, you know, who had been encouraged to fight for it now, as this post instructed them to, uh, weren't from this kind of background and had, ne had rarely ever experienced this sort of idyllic green and pleasant land as depicted. And so it was only for, I think, yes, 42, by 43, the posters for for the war effort had all turned into things like digging for victory and recycling your metal and investing in national bonds and that kind of thing. So it, this was considered, you know, really a bit extreme or bordering on the pornographic in its use of, of the landscape. And just like the Keep Calm and Carry On poster, it's now an incredibly popular image and it's been reproduced very much and people think... I think when people see it now, they assume that it was part of a successful narrative used during the war, and it really wasn't. Which is the same as the Keep Calm and Carry On exactly. poster. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So it's that kind of false nostalgia, and it's always a nostalgia that starts the false nostalgia off in the first place. So yes, it's an anomaly in the war effort, this image, and I think people were, were slightly bemused, ver verging on the horrified, that you know the landscape was being exploited in this way. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Richard King and we're talking about his latest book, The Lark Ascending, The Music of the British Landscape. And Richard, we talked in the first half about you know, an idyllic view of the past of you know the Edwardian British landscape. Of course, something that was you know inextricably linked to extremely wealthy landowners and most people didn't have access to that land. But there's another way that the the British landscape was sort of used, sort of memorialised. And, and often, again, you mentioned about, you know, the, all of the new nature writing, which I think is interesting that sort of doesn't talk that much about how the landscape was co-opted by the far right. Sure, sure. Um, I want to talk, first of all, about... We're going to get on to the Kibbo Kift, as you mentioned, in a minute, but let's talk about Rolf Gardiner. Who was he? So, um, Rolf Gardner was the son of a German Egyptologist and a Jewish mother. He was a very handsome, very striking, dashing undergraduate at Cambridge, where having been taken to his father by his father to Germany, he is exposed to the Bund movement in Germany, the various youth groups that were despairing of Weimar Germany, despairing of the loss of discipline and by the rise of Nazism, had, had sort of been co-opted into the Hitler Youth, uh, having, I think, partially inspired them. At Cambridge, he edits a magazine called Youth and writes typical undergraduate iconoclastic editorials, uh, often in praise of D.H. Lawrence. He had a phenomenal interest in folk dancing. 
And his interpretation of the energy of folk dancing was that it could return man, and it was always man, to his roots in the soil. And by dancing on the soil, he would awaken the spirit within the soil. And a man who knew that the soil had a power that he could feel through his feet would feel it in his bloodstream and be able to plough and till the land and restore Britain to its glory. Obviously, he was young, very idealistic. He and a friend founded a wandering Morris troupe. They would go on tours of what he called the lowlands, you know, near the Ridgeway, Wiltshire. His dancing was considered by the British Folk and Dance Society to be unrepresentative, outré, difficult. He was considered to be a bit too iconoclastic and he fell out with Cecil Sharp and was told he couldn't represent Britain or Morris dancing abroad. Uh, although he he did tour Germany with his with his Morris troupe, that was in the twenties, and then as the thirties wore on, his uncle bought a dilapidated farm, and this was a time when agricultural property was in you know the popular phrase was rack and ruin, and although it was a substantial estate by today's standards, it probably wasn't the biggest uh, commitment financially, but nevertheless, as a young man, he had the run of an estate called Springhead in Dorset, and. He founded something called the Springhead Ring, which he wanted to use as a kind of, not a private army. They came later, and to to his credit, Gardner didn't have a private army, although some of his friends did and acquaintances did. It was a sort of, it was a youth camp. He was very interested in the unemployed working class of the North, that they'd come and learn traditions. And he also hosted... It was a kind of far-right river cottage, really, basically. (laughs) It was trying to, to involve the local people to grow vegetables, to rescue the land from the awful state it was in, and to do so would rescue the country. And this was beyond patriotism. This is a kind of blood and soil belief, blood and soil, the philosophy invented by Richard Dare, a high-up Nazi officer, a philosophy, blood and soil, taken up by Rudolf Hess into Alia. And Rolf Gardner visits Germany in 1938-39 with his friend Viscount Limington, the Earl of Portsmouth, Um, who is interred at the outbreak of war because of his Nazi, if not sympathies, and certainly his connections to Nazi Germany. Limington resigns from the government in the 30s at the creation of a milk marketing board, thinking it's the dead hand of the state. And if there should be a minister, it should be the minister for manure, because manure is... I mean, on the one hand, he's a sort of Spode-esque figure, and, you know, absolutely ridiculous. But um, he was taken quite seriously. So Gardner resists joining uh, the British Union of Fascists, although he has overtures from Oswald Mosley to do so. And there is within Gardner this absolute love of music, really deep knowledge of English folk song, probably not as definitive a knowledge as Percy Granger or Rayford Williams or Cecil Sharp, but close. And at Springhead, he and the Springhead Ring sing constantly including Turn, Turn, Turn to Everything There is a Season and other folk songs that 30 years later are adopted by what we call the counterculture, the hippies, the, you know, the folk songs that we associate with Love, Peace and Flowers were being sung by quasi-fascists and people who were fraternised with Nazis in Dorset and elsewhere. And I think what's interesting about that is the songs themselves can be interpreted by either, you know, either generation. 
uh, Gardner was served on the Agricultural War Committee. He volunteered for the Home Guard, was rejected, and his reputation never quite recovered. But he, he certainly fraternised with people who had far more extreme views and were interred. And essentially, the, the birth of the organic farming movement stems from the far right in this country. The founding member of the Soil Association is Jorian Jenks, who was Oswald Mosley's agricultural spokesman. And Mosley had established that the agricultural workers were incredibly disenfranchised during the 30s. And there was a, funnily enough, there are parallels today, there is a workforce there that could be coerced into, into sympathising with fascism. And Gardner and his friends, Lymington and Jenks, part of two very strange societies called the English Array in the English Mystery uh, secret societies that meet in Lincoln's Inn Fields and they're against miscagnation, they're against the suffragettes, they're against, they're very, very anti-Semitic, they're homophobic, they're against everything apart from a return to the feudal system and the absolute supremacy of the crown. I mean, it's pretty out there what they, what they were in, into. Um, it shows, I think, how... The landscape and the soil and the the sort of love of roots is a dangerous thing. And landowners during this era, because they own the land, think only they know how best it should be used and that there are secrets within the land that only people of their stock can really share. And it goes beyond sort of yeomanry or, or some long familial holding over a piece of land it goes deeper than that and you know Rudolf Hess was very and Rudolf Steiner as well was Rudolf Steiner invented biodynamic farming which you know meant that a cow a cow's skeleton should be buried and then sprinkled with water and then broken up and thrown over a field and then it could be ploughed and um, you know one of the interesting things about these 1930s fascists or proto-fascists was how little time they had for that sort of romantic modern shell oil poster version of the countryside they really thought that was suburban and pathetic and why would you go and look at a lich gate and a parish church when you could be ploughing and why would you go and look at Stonehenge I mean what's what's interesting about Stonehenge who cares so it's all very Nietzschean as well, unsurprisingly. But their their interest and connection to music was as profound as that of, say, Ashley Hutchins 30 years later. Um, let's talk about the Kibbo Kift. Who were they? So they were... The Kibbo Kift were a far less extreme, politically at least, version of another 30s rural sect, although I don't think they were truly rural. They were They were deeply suburban in many ways. They were founded by John Hargraves, someone who was very interested in scouting and an interesting man, illustrator, writer, thinker. Don't quite know what his spiritual... He was brought up a Quaker. I don't know if he completely adhered to that throughout his life, but he thought being outdoors, camping, the early tenets of scouting, within that there is a way of, again, restoring vitality and dignity to mankind after the First World War. And one of the um, principles of the Kibbo Kift was to establish world peace. And he wrote very interesting tracts. He was a beautiful illustrator. He wrote a newsletter called The Nomad. Gardner would write newsletters as well, it was a, and as would the English Mystery and the English Array. 
But the Kibber Kift was, remarkably for the time, welcome to both men and women to join, and both and children and adults as well. And it was a sort of... So it would be easy to call them proto-hippies and say it was a back-to-the-nature love of the mystical, Edenic kind of society, but there was more to it than that. Given the times they were living in, there was inevitably a kind of shade to their activities that was unpleasant. Hargrave was interested in eugenics. And I think you have to you have to accept that that was something that was in the air in the 1930s. But he thought if people... The Kift all wore a special uniform. They learnt to be fit and physically well. They learnt bushcraft and they learnt to sing and dance. And they were definitely part of the William Brown, just William Betterment for Spiritual Society wing of 1930s organisations. Um, they were very popular in Buckinghamshire, which is where he, he lived, in Hertfordshire and the home counties in particular. And lots of their members were things like headmistresses or, or quite senior civil servants and... I think if you think of something like uh, the character of someone like Leonard Bast in Howard's End, who meets one of the sisters at the uh, Helen at the concert for music and meaning, and then goes for long walks in the moonlight and can't stop walking in nature. I think someone like Leonard Bast, a character like that, wasn't too far away from some of the Kibokif members. I think most of them were slightly more well to do, more like the sisters in Howard's End. But that idea of the Clark finding a spiritual meaning in a, in a society was abroad in the Kibbo Kift and they wore wonderful clothes and the drawings really remind me of I from Boredom's album covers they're that wonderful linear colourful quality but he he then became slightly autocratic and slightly he didn't want to be considered a sect but I think it slightly turned into a sect Rolf Gardner was a member for a while but they fell out and then he wrote a very nasty um, editorial saying, you know, it was called De Suburbia Defender Est or something in Latin. My Latin's not what it was, but um, he he was just basically saying this is this is mumbo jumbo. I'm not interested in this. And as as the right wing rose in Britain in the thirties, Gardner starts the Green Shirts and is into what we'd now call sort of universal basic income. That was an idea he had. He was a, a wonderful man. I think quite a confused man. Who knows? But uh, he certainly left his mark, and the Museum of London has a definitive Kibbo Kif collection, which is well worth going to if anyone's ever near the Barbican. You mentioned Stonehenge a yeah. while ago, yeah. And um, I want to I want to finish off back at Stonehenge, and yeah. um, the book comes well not right up to date, but like pretty up to date with the the culmination of of the you know the Thatcher government's war against. The New Age travellers yeah. in the in the 90s um, at Stonehenge, um, and I want to talk about. I mean, again, we talked about the the mass trespass in the Peak District, and I want to talk about the the, the New Age movement, New Age traveller movement in in their relation to the land. Mm. You know, finding you know common land to to have yeah. sort of parties on and things. So, I mean, by the time you get to the 80s and. Britain has joined the EU for over a decade and farmers and landovers are into uh, over a decade's worth of very generous subsidy. Land has value again in a way it never had before and oilseed rape appears in the fields of Buckinghamshire, which 
gleam in the sunlight because there's so much money in agriculture, the most there's ever been. So there's no land to go back to. In the 60s, the back-to-land movement could find cheap, scrubby acre or two for next to nothing. Maybe they wouldn't be able to buy it, but they'd be able to live on it for free or get by or find a way of buying some land after a decade there of convincing a farmer. Who knows? But certainly by the 80s, land was valuable. So the New Age travellers are almost a back-to-the-land movement where there's no land to go back to just laybys and A roads and quiet B roads in the middle of forests and fields off off roads in the home well they they weren't in the home counties they were very much a west country phenomenon I think because of Stonehenge because of Glastonbury because of Avebury and because of that sort of you know leyline mystic tradition that came after you know the view over Atlantis John Michel the 60s that sort of countercultural interest in the druids that got going yeah, Stonehenge, I mean, I nearly tied myself up in knots trying to, to work out our relationship with Stonehenge. Stonehenge is owned by the National Trust from the 1930s onwards, and the Druids got going again. Druids were celebrating at Stonehenge throughout the 20s and 30s. But the National Trust gave Stonehenge to the nation, or as it was given to National Trust, it ended up being in the, in the ownership of the country. So we all own Stonehenge. By the 70s, it becomes a crucial meeting place for people who've decided to drop out and the people who would begin to be called New Age travellers. And it was crucial to their way of life because it became an assembly point for almost the entire month of June to celebrate the solstice, Midsummer's Day, which obviously came in post the 60s Druidic movement. And as a way of kind of... Yeah, it was a sort of AGM for hippies, basically, for itinerant hippies. If you accept that Stonehenge was built, that some of the stones aligned in a certain way, both solstices, if you accept a national monument owned by the public seems to have been built for the celebration of of these moments of the year, if a government accepts that, they're basically giving the people who think and live according to those sort of beliefs, agency. And that's the last thing a government wants to do. And by 1982, boy, is it the last thing that the Thatcher government wants to do. So as things started getting lively for the miners' strike in 83 and the Greenham Common peace camp had been established and, you know, we're post the inner city riots of 81... In their wisdom, the Conservative government decide that some hippies who live in trucks and have nothing need to be treated as the next enemy within. And there were some members of the peace convoy who saw police vans overtaking them on their way to Greenham Common or a minor strike conflict. And a sign was held up saying, you're next. By 1984, there was probably a quarter of a million people passing through Stonehenge during June many on their way to Glastonbury. I think it's worth pointing out that, and, you know, without name-dropping, this is something Johnny Marr said to me when I was researching my first book, that when the Smiths played Glastonbury, it felt like a a countercultural act, and there was no Nokia stage. I mean, there isn't now, but there was no... There was just a stage. And he said for the Smiths to play there, it felt like they were playing to their community, and there was a big CND sign on the pyramid stage, and that people could come together... And, you know, I don't think we think of the Smiths as a sort of hippie resistance band, but certainly 
Johnny Marr did by playing Glastonbury thought, you know, that's who we are. So by the mid-80s, you know, Glastonbury is, is crucial to lots of different ideas of what a counterculture was, but most significantly to, to the traveller ethos. And Stonehenge is even more crucial. And Stonehenge had a you know, quarter million people passing through and the police clearly thought, well, we can't have this unlawful assembly and this mass drug taking. And there are people who were regulars there who were saying by the mid 80s, Stonehenge was pretty unpleasant. You know, it was, there was some hard drugs being dealt by the convoy. There was all sorts going on and it, it wasn't necessarily a peace and love place at all. But by 1985, if the Stonehenge Free Festival happened that year, it would have happened for the 12th year and set a legal precedent that it could happen again. And that that possibility had to be resisted by the government. So we're a year after the miners' strike and the police surround Stonehenge in barbed wire, a monument we all own, a monument owned by the National Trust. In all our care, they basically turn into a battlefield. And what follows is is 300 or so hippies in dilapidated gym crack vehicles on their way to Stonehenge not only get their heads kicked in, but get assaulted, have their entire way of life destroyed, have their vehicles set on fire, have their dogs put down, have their partners, some of whom are pregnant, dragged through the windscreens of the vehicles they used to call home. And a police riot basically destroys their way of life and it became known as the Battle of the Beanfield. And a few months after, in the police journal, the trade journal, a report is written about the success of the operation being based on lessons learned in the miners' strike. In what may be one of the very few examples of someone in their 40s showing someone in their 20s YouTube footage, and the person in their 20s is shaking their head in disbelief. (laughs) I showed a friend of mine, he's far younger than me, Footage, unedited footage of the Battle of the Beanfield, which is available for everyone. And if if this book does anything, I'd love people to learn more about the Battle of the Beanfield. My voice is catching because I find it so appalling what happened to these people. Um, Yeah, the unedited footage is almost impossible to watch. At one point, a woman turns to the camera and just says, can't you see what they're doing to us? And there are police officers restraining one another from going too far. All their badges are covered up. It couldn't happen now. But it happened then, and I don't really know why it happened. And I'm not sure the people who gave the orders or carried out the orders know why it happened either. It just seems like an absolutely wanton act of state violence. And this is happening under a bright blue sky in a National Trust monument (laughs) in Wiltshire, you know. So... Yes, it was It was a horrible, horrible moment of entrenchment, the 1980s. And I, obviously, New Age hippies, crusties, travellers, the convoy, call them what you will. If you've dropped that far out of society, you're not going to have any agency. You know, no, who's going to speak for you? And they didn't have a, an Arthur Scargill. So it's rather been forgotten what happened to them or why it happened to them. But anyway... I go into this in great length in the book. The charges all got dropped. There there was the biggest mass arrest after the Beanfield. All these travellers, it was the biggest mass arrest in Britain after the Second World War. And all the charges were dropped, proved to be unlawful. And it was a very, very, very brutal stitch-up, basically. And some of the travellers took the police to court and won. And even though they won, they didn't receive any 
or marginal expenses, no compensation. So even in their victory in the court of law, they got shafted. But I think we wouldn't have had the raves, we wouldn't have had a Castle Morton without the New Age travellers. And, you know, I, don't, you know, I, know, I knew travellers, and I knew travellers who, they were like any part of society. There was good and bad, there was hardcore criminal, criminal there was terrible misogyny, there was all sorts going on, and there were certainly lots of people with mental health problems, and I, I can't speak, you know, I don't like generalising in that way, they were, they were people. They were a force of resistance to, to what was happening to housing and the fact you couldn't live anywhere. But I knew travellers who had jobs, but they decided to live that way. And people have lived forever in that way in this country. Um, and also in the book, I, I, I write a note saying, I know, you know, travellers are, um, Romani people are often called travellers. So I, I make the distinction. I make that now as well. Um, the rave scene, I think, came from the fact that the laws got changed is a further act of trying to kind of decommission the convoy in the traveller's way of life. It was all about how long you could reside somewhere before the bailiffs came. So you can't reside in this bailiff more than six weeks. And there was a slight change to the law about residing. And then you couldn't be somewhere... For, you could be somewhere for 24 hours but not reside there. That meant that people realised, right, well, we can be somewhere for 24 hours and they can't touch us. And then we can do one, we can escape. And that's really how, how the, the free party part of Raven got going. And people realised they could find a bit of land, get the generators out, kick off and then leave and the police couldn't touch them. I've been talking to Richard King. We've been talking about his new book, The Lock Ascending, The Music of the British Landscape, which is out now in the UK from Faber. Richard, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Been a pleasure, Neil. Thanks very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.